Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the RevDam Healing Board Podcast. My name is Oliver Garner. I'm joined today, in person, by Paolo Sandri. Paolo is a lecturer at the University of Leeds, and he's the author of the recently published monograph, The Making of Constitutional Democracy, From Creation to Application of Law. Today, Paolo and I will have a conversation that takes in the practical applications of his work in light of recent developments in both the United Kingdom and also in the European Union. So, Paolo, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Hi, Oliver, and thank you very much for having me. It's, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. So, the title of your book, The Making of Constitutional Democracy, may be regarded by some as quite uh, an ambitious scope of inquiry. Could you explain for our readers and listeners the core arguments of your work? Of course, and um, I'm aware that uh, the title of the book might sound ambitious. I mean, it is ambitious in a way, and that's why also it took me about 10 years to <laughs> complete. Um, the book basically uh, is born out of a very basic observation. Um, Lawyers, people working with the law, public officials, they all seem to assume that there is such thing as the distinction between the activity of making the law, creating the law, you know, when a parliament, a legislature, or a policymaker, they, they make the issue rules, and uh, instead the concept of law application, when instead other officials, uh, being judges, being administrative, uh, civil servants, police officers, and so forth, they actually apply those rules to individual cases and scenarios. Absolutely. Now, the interesting thing is that when you look at the jurisprudential literature in particular, uh, the vast majority of those authors that have looked at the distinction, they've claimed that it's either untenable, uh, and actually most of the time they have questioned the idea of law application altogether. So sure. this is scholars from different approaches, legal realists, critical legal scholars, uh, uh, legal constructivists, even working in some respects, yes. uh, at least the, the, the standard picture. So sure. some people might think that this book uh, is in a way naive because there might be no need to actually defend the distinction. But when you look at the relevant literature, you see that actually most people think that the distinction doesn't hold. Now, why is this relevant? And why is this relevant not just for legal theorists, but for public lawyers or administrative lawyers? It is relevant because, as I illustrate in the book, if there is no such thing as application of law, if you cannot distinguish between the activities of creating the law, making the law in some instances, and applying at a later moment in time those rules made beforehand, yes. then neither the idea of the rule of law or constitutionalism can hold, can exist, nor the idea of democracy itself. The idea of democracy is premised either direct or indirect democracy, but it's premised on the idea that either ourselves through referenda or through electing some representatives, these representatives make laws which then are supposed to govern our behavior. This is the idea of self-government. If democracy is about something, it's about that. Absolutely. So if you have no if law application cannot exist conceptually, then we are living in a collective delusion. Are we in the matrix or something of the sort? So this was the basic observation from which the book was born. And so what I do in the book in a nutshell is through an um, interdisciplinary 
approach, which includes not just legal theory, not just public law, constitutional theory, but also anthropology, legal history, philosophy of language, political philosophy. I tried to put forward what, to my knowledge, is the first comprehensive uh, defense of the distinction between creation and application of law, and in the meantime, I show its relevance for some of the uh, hottest or, or most uh, contended debates in constitutional and, and public law in general. Well, it's fascinating to hear, and thanks so much for that concise explanation. You said how these can be applied to the hottest debates. I think, as we will get on to, it can also be applied to some of the hottest, most uh, topical issues facing both the UK and the EU at the moment. And one thing I found interesting when thinking about your thesis argument is perhaps we have a situation where a lot of legal scholars take too narrow an idea of what the executive is and what the executive does. And you mentioned about police. Now, I think it's very interesting to consider whether we almost need to broaden our concept of the law in action to take in what the police do when they're enforcing the law. So perhaps actually a more layman understanding of the law can actually be helpful for legal scholars. I absolutely agree to the point that I think this is one of the biggest flaws in my view of Anglo-American jurisprudence in the last 60, 50 years. Yeah. Um, you can see in the fact that even Hart, in the concept of law, mm -hmm. he does not really consider uh, the application of law before courts. Absolutely. It's yeah. like there is a, a vacuum, basically. Laws are made by parliaments or legislatures or whatever, or yeah. secondary legislation made by the government, and then there is the application by courts. And this misses the vast majority, actually, of legal phenomenology. Because Absolutely. if you think about it, the majority of law doesn't end up in courts. Absolutely. And this is a big flaw, I think, in uh, jurisprudence mm. in general. I've tried to argue, even before my book, I published uh, some other work in which I was arguing precisely to put lay people at the center again of the theory of interpretation, because that is often... and. As, as you were mentioning, the vast majority, the, the first law application is almost always made by government officials, police officers, civil servants. Think about the vast number of uh, functions that any executive performs in a modern constitutional democracy. The majority of those, what? Well, the majority. Many of those functions would be law-applying functions. Absolutely. And I was struck by this reading your book. Some of the examples that people regard as mundane, but they're very important for people's life conditions. And maybe the last thing I'd say on this before we move on to more of the contemporary political, high political drama, is the fact that in terms of a layman's understanding, the term law and order, it has connotations, it's been used in political campaigns, but it does speak to what people regard legal systems as being for, which I think does at heart go to security, it's something that people feel they need. But in any case, I think yeah, you've, uh, let's say, managed to identify a gap uh, in terms of legal scholars, you could say selection bias based on their focus being courts exclusively. I could actually give you an interesting example that just came to my mind Please, that yeah. is based on, on my experience. We're in, mm. here in Manchester, uh, which is a great city in the north of England. Very close to my heart as well. <laughs> and, um, and there is one of the, basically Manchester has two ring roads, an internal one and an external one. And the internal one, it's called Trinity Way, and it's a ring road that basically literally runs uh, 
you know, beyond buildings in the city center. Now, sure. the speed limit of this ring road used to be 50 miles, as with most similar uh, roads of the kind. Yeah. Yeah. Recently, a year ago, year and a half ago, I think during the, the height of the COVID pandemic, um, the civil authorities, Manchester City Council, uh, decided to um, reduce the speed limit to 30 miles per hour. Which I think it's a good idea. I think there are a number of reasons Absolutely. to do that. Uh, less pollution, uh, noise pollution, and reasons so for action. One could reasons say. for action. Yeah. The problem is that they're not really enforcing it. Ah, there we go. So <laughs> the law is not being applied. And what do I mean, or at least the fact that the police should be applying the speed limit? Now, Absolutely. why is this relevant? This is relevant because I happen to drive on Trinity Way sometimes and I abide by the speed limit. And it, it's happening almost every and each time that when I'm abiding by the speed limit, I get another driver behind me starting to flash me with the flashlights or, you know, like literally honking at me and, and trying to say, you know, you need to go forward. Yeah. Now, those people are under the impression that the speed limit doesn't exist because it's not being enforced. So this really, I think, explains also how the majority of application of law should be done and is done by the police and if it doesn't happen this has effect for the capacity of law to regulate conduct definitely so thank you for that that's a fascinating example i mean it touches on competing normative orders tradition custom you could say of 50 miles per hour even the fact that so many decisions about the ordinary life conditions of citizens are made by local authorities um, but I'm sure we could talk about legal theory case studies all day, but I suppose we kind of have to move on to, let's say, the very important business of states, or at least the business of analysing states. And my question here is actually specifically linked to a uh, claim, an argument you make in your book. Uh, for our listeners, it's on page 56, I believe, in the version that we have. But here you discuss what you consider to be the problem of different meanings that the term constitution has had throughout history, maybe differences in how constitution has been regarded throughout different societies. And you discuss how at least a more promising approach is to consider constitutionalism from a legal theoretical perspective, but particularly focusing on the theory of sources. And I think I might be right in saying the sources thesis is very important to legal positivism broadly outlined. You mentioned H. Le Hart earlier. But my very specific question for, let's say, our practical situation on the ground in terms of politics, matters of state, is applying this sources thesis, what, according to you, are the sources of the United Kingdom's constitution? And also, what could be the sources of the European Union's constitution, if indeed we can use that term to describe the EU supranational legal order. So, um, I might need a couple of days to answer uh, the two, uh, this two-pronged uh, question, but I'll try my best to be uh, brief. Um, Calling it the source thesis might, as you said, the source thesis is one of the famous basic main tenets of legal positivism. Sure. Now, different people understand different things by source thesis. What I try to show in the book is that um, for a long time, the doctrine of constitutionalism was equated with the presence in a legal system, in a certain political legal system, of a constitution. Yes. 
This to me is problematic in a number of ways. Two examples. The first one is that if that's the case, then every system that has a constitution is necessarily constitutional. Yes. I don't think that's correct Absolutely. because constitutionalism requires, in my view, the limitation of political power, and actually it's the legal limitation of political power, and I unpack this in the book. Yes, but also you take the United Kingdom. Let's go to the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom is, in my view, correctly recognized as the motherland, as the birthplace of modern constitutionalism, because since the Magna Carta we have had this idea that there are limits to what the sovereign can do, the ultimate political power. And now, if you take the understanding of constitutionalism as the presence of a constitution, in particular a codified constitution, then we would end up in a paradox, because the UK doesn't have a formal, formalized or codified constitution, hence how can they have constitutionalism? In the book, I try to argue that this is because the common law has played this limitating role vis-a-vis -vis political power, first vis-a-vis -vis the power of the monarch, Absolutely. and then after the power, of, uh, the power of parliament. Now, this goes against the orthodox model of parliamentary sovereignty, but I'm critical of it, not on a normative basis, on an historical and conceptual basis. If you don't mind me coming in very briefly, I would say you potentially could have support from the dicta of certain cases of the former House of Lords Appellate Chamber, now the Supreme Court. And I'm referring to the R. and Jackson case, where there was speculation amongst the law lords that parliamentary sovereignty itself, well, let's say this is how it's been interpreted by scholars, but the speculation is that the very concept of parliamentary sovereignty could be regarded as a concept of the common law. And this raises a fascinating, let's say, hypothetical about whether there could be a situation where legislation passed by Parliament is so contrary to other principles of the common law that the courts could find that it is not a valid act of Parliament. But I'll just park that thought there. And uh... My thesis is actually even more radical in some okay. respect. Um, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the thesis uh, that um, uh, parliamentary sovereignty might be a creation of the common law has been criticized by uh, particularly two of the most strenuous current defenders of the orthodox model of parliamentary sovereignty. Uh, well, I should say of the, alt, of the uh, unlimited doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty. Um, uh, Mike Gordon, Michael Gordon from, from Liverpool and um, Jerry, uh, Jeffrey Gold, uh, Goldsworthy from uh, Australia. Now, my thesis is even different. My thesis is, as a matter of historical recognized practice, there, there have always been limits to yes. what the king before the monarch before and parliament after the Glorious Revolution could do, Absolutely. and these limits were recognized, particularly, and actually I'm writing a piece at the moment, well, I was writing, had to put it on hold, I'm going to go back to it soon, but I have a piece in which I'm trying to explain that certainly one principle that was always considered to be a limit to what Parliament, you know, the sovereign could do, is the principle of Nemo Judex in causa mm. sua. No, no one should be judged in their own cause. Absolutely, absolutely. And this limit has been applied, has been enforced, has been accepted. So my thesis is not normative, it's historical and conceptual. If I'm right, 
then it is not the case that parliamentary sovereignty, as uh, Michael Gordon, as Jeffrey Goldsworthy claim, has always been accepted as the rule of recognition for the, you know, the the the, the, the listeners who, who are aware of the rule of recognition uh, thesis uh, by heart, was not the ultimate rule of recognition of the United Kingdom, but it was always limited. So there is no such thing as a limited sovereignty of Parliament. It's fascinating. And, well, I think I'd actually at this point advise our readers and listeners to engage in some of the, I would say, fantastic constitutional fiction from this island, which would be William Shakespeare, Richard II, and then Henry IV, part one and part two. And in terms of almost, let's say, the lived narrative of divine right of kings, the limits of power, succession. I think there is a lot in there which could perhaps support your position on the idea that that sovereign power was always subject to, I would say, factual limitations and potentially also normative limitations. In the book, the quicker side. <laughs> no, absolutely. In the book and in a blog that I wrote uh, a few months ago for the UK Constitutional Law Blog, yes. um, I actually called this pragmatic limitation in a nutshell. Yeah. In systems with codified constitution and strong form of constitutional review, yeah. the Supreme Court or Constitutional Court can basically just, you know, uh, uh, strike down legislation. This is not what happened, has happened and continues to happen in the UK. What happens in the UK is that the courts say, well, this is not what Parliament could have possibly have intended. It's literally a theory of fiction, and you know yeah. we have examples in Privacy International. I mean, the Auster Clause in Privacy International. Auster Clause is basically a particular um, uh, disposition in a, in, a, in a legislative act, which says that uh, courts are not the jurisdiction of the courts is basically removed from adjudicating on decisions Absolutely. premised on the act. Yeah. Uh, Supreme Court said, well, you know, this is not really what the court is possibly been saying. And the, and the, the uh, case law on Auster clauses stretches back all the way to an Islam. I, I, I never know. Is an Isminic or an Isminic? I I've believe heard. it's an Isminic. An Isminic. I would ask our listeners not to quote me on that. I've heard <laughs> both. I'm not the native speaker here, so I rely to epistemic uh, authority. Well, it's a company name, I believe. It's so a company name. We might name. have to ask the directors. <laughs> but the point is that this has always been how constitutional limits have been enforced. Indeed. Now, this is acknowledged even by the defender of the unlimited theory of parliamentary sovereignty, and I'm giving away too much right now, because I think I'm giving away my, my article. We but, can edit that out, don't worry. No, but, um, but really I believe that yeah. they cannot just claim, oh, but this has happened, but this is fine, it's still unlimited. It's not, because... I would say at that point, and I think it is very relevant to, let's say, almost um, applying these very interesting theoretical arguments to the current political situation, Privacy International, ouster clauses, these were main, let's say, targets for what one could call the current, actually the previous UK government's programme of constitutional reform. And we saw that the Judicial Power Project of pro, uh, Policy Exchange were quite active in publishing reports on this. So I think it's very relevant for our listeners to note that what might appear to be arguments that take place in classrooms are very relevant on the ground in the UK at the moment. And you have legal theorists teaching at Oxford University, for example, involved in this almost frontline political drama. So I would say that really is an example of how relevant your work is for the current political situation. 
And on that point, you mentioned in your last answer there this concept, I don't know if that's the right word, but the idea, let's say, that the common law has functioned as a legitimating limitation on democracy that derives from what can be regarded as constitutionalism. You also identify the Commonwealth as one of these uh, limitations as well. My question for you is whether there are further legitimating limitations within the United Kingdom's constitutional order that can be seen to exercise a restraining function on democracy. We've already mentioned King Richard II and King Richard IV, uh, which goes way back into UK history, but to really bring us forward to the present day, my question would be, has the monarchy played a role in constraining the possible excesses of democracy in the UK? And do you believe that the monarchy could continue to play such a role or could do in the future? And I could say maybe, opening this up a bit more, can constitutional monarchy play this role in other orders that currently have what could be seen as close to an unlimited monarchy? Because I think this is a really fascinating question for possible transition of absolute monarchies that we see in the world today. One can point to examples in the Middle East. So yeah, in a nutshell, the question would be, can the monarchy help to preserve a constitutional order? So, um, let me preface with a clarification. Sure, sure. What I don't do in the, in the book is to romanticize the common law. Sure. I do not claim, and because it would be wrong, that the common law is provided always and in every case in which it should have been perhaps uh, a limitating function vis-a-vis the decision of the sovereign. Absolutely. Uh, the common law, as we know, is born out of experience. It um, grows organically or, yeah. or by accident. But in any case, what I'm trying to say is that the argument is conceptual. Yeah. I'm not saying that the common law model of constitutionalism is superior to the entrenched, you know, like uh, formal constitutional uh, model. What I'm saying is that they share the, the basic concept, the, the, the basic uh, dynamic. Um, now, um, um, when it comes to the monarchy, it's a, it's a tricky answer in the sense that uh, you can make, you can, you can answer from a variety of perspectives. You could look at it empirically, and there are some studies in which whether or not constitutional monarchies do a better job than presidential system yes. in uh, representing a sort of um, symbolic presence yeah. within a constitutional order yes. that maintains some kind of point, uh, focal point for not just the population but the constitutional actors as well. Uh, sorry. No, if you don't mind me coming no? in, I actually would regard this myself as what I would call the symbolic separation of powers. And I find this quite a potentially important idea that one needs to be developed. I'll just very briefly outline it. In the United Kingdom, the person who exercises all of the de facto power, the Prime Minister, lives in a house. Now, it's a very well-protected house, but it's a house on 10 Downing Street, which is mainly an office with an apartment at the top. This is symbolic, I think, of the fact they are the first of the ministers. Now, of course, the monarch 
who exercises all of the, the Jura power lives in the palace, has multiple palaces. Everyone's aware of this from all of the state ceremonials that have been occurring. But of course, crucially, we've seen with the fact that the accession was broadcast live that the power in terms of genuine power de facto is very limited. He can, and is a he now, the king, merely has to say approves to everything the Privy Council gives to them. Just to compare that very briefly to the situation in France, and this is, I would like to say, purely observational rather than normative. The President of the Republic exercises, of course, not unlimited power, but they have the jura and de facto power, and the President lives in a palace, the Elise. So I just think it's interesting to compare those two different models, and I wonder if that has any relevance to what you're saying in terms of the symbolic separation of powers. Well, it does insofar also as there are other models, so you can also contrast it with the Italian model, yes. while the President of the Republic is a guarantee uh, what I, what in the book I would describe as a, it performs a guaranteeing function, Absolutely. which is not necessarily a formal one, actually uh, very much uh, very much not so. Uh, the Italian President of the Republic particularly because of the instability that the notorious or famous <laughs> according to uh, to some uh, it's just part of constitutional identity <laughs> well yes but yes there is a problem with the role exercised by the monarchy here yes and i think it's a fundamental contradiction that uh, at some point might need to be resolved because the whole legitimacy to still have uh, uh, an active monarchy in the United Kingdom is that, well, this is compatible with being a parliamentary democracy, possibly a constitutional democracy, sure. uh, because the, the, the monarch doesn't really have a say, basically. The yes. monarch basically does what his ministers yeah. tell him to do. And we know that that is not necessarily the case, or at least not always the case. Um, a few months ago, The Guardian published a number of articles on a uh, procedure called the Queen Consent, Queen's Consent, which is different from our Royal Assent, which is, you yes. know, the prerogative power and um, underlying constitutional convention that says that the monarch Absolutely. will give assent to any bill that has been properly formed, Absolutely. either in both houses of parliament or according to the procedure yes. uh, of the Parliament Act 1911. Anyway, <laughs> um, sorry, this is the academic, uh, you know, it's, it's a mental habit. But when you realize that the monarch does more than merely rubber something, then there is a question of legitimacy. Quite. Especially when we also know that, you know, there is a, the, the, the monarchy, the, the British monarchy has a vast wealth yes. that is in some way still treated differently mm -hmm. uh, from anyone else in the country. Absolutely. I'm thinking about, for instance, uh, inheritance uh, at the moment. Um, but also, but to my knowledge, uh, the monarch does not pay inheritance taxes. I think we need uh, a tax lawyer to <laughs> verify Well, we can that, edit but... out this case, but in sure, any case, sure. uh, until a uh, couple of decades ago, uh, you know, the monarchy wouldn't pay a number of taxes. In any case, what I'm, what I'm saying is that in the moment in which the monarchy has 
uh, a vast wealth. And they are able to, and we know that the monarchy has received a number of exceptions or exemptions from the application of laws that apply to everyone else in the country. There is a problem of legitimacy that. What I was saying, we move on to, one could say, problems in, of course, rule of law is regarded as an essentially concept, uh, contested concept by some, but I think we do touch upon what could be seen as the core principle of the rule of law, that no one person is above the law, and that's being regarded as, let's say, leading to the principle that everyone is equal before the law. So, a very interesting question, I think, in terms of the distinction between the person and the office and the monarch. And I would just say very briefly, we have seen, so when Charles became king, one of the points of business in the Privy Council was him divesting, I believe is the right word, all of his personal wealth to the state, which is very fascinating to see it done in a mere flourish of the word approved. But I wonder if that is also relevant in terms of the well, what I would say public is that, private power um, distinction. The former Prime Minister Boris Johnson was forced to resign. Yes. Uh, well, one could say that there were many reasons why he might have had to resign. Many but reasons for action in Boris's mind. Many reasons for action. But let's say that certainly um, one big part was played by the so-called um, you know, um, lockdown part of number 10, etc., etc. And the point Absolutely. was precisely that the Prime Minister cannot be above the law. Exactly. Where everyone else, we all did sacrifice. We yes. didn't see our loved ones. Quite we nice. didn't party. We didn't celebrate. Uh, you know, I didn't celebrate my marriage with, with families and friends because we... Now, I think that the same applies or should apply to the monarchs. And that is a basic point, but for some reason it doesn't. So we go back to the symbolic, um, uh, to the symbolic value, almost as if, from an empirical point of view, the symbolism, the continuous symbolism of the monarchy, yes. represents something larger than the whole in some respect. Now the question is, and I will stop here, and I think that many commentators have raised this: is that can Charles, the the new king? Exert the same kind of pull that uh, the Queen has exerted for, for yeah. over 70 years? I think that's a great question, and if I were to proffer some thoughts myself, I'd say this almost necessarily depends on the nature of the personality. I would advise our readers and listeners again if they were interested in this from a fictional point of view. There's a think, very interesting play called King Richard III, uh, which was dramatized on Channel 4. So, for those in the UK, it's available on all four. It sounds like I'm plugging for them. But in any case, it's a fascinating hypothetical example of what would happen if King Charles III, the man, decided to withhold royal assent. The reason I bring that up is this is a very formal example. You could say this is quite a basic example of how constitutional breakdown could happen in the UK. What I find a bit more interesting and a bit subtler is the fact that necessarily you're going to have a difference for a prime minister when they go in for their weekly audience with the monarch. If they're talking to a woman who is in her 80s or 90s compared to a man who is in his 70s, compared to, and this is where I think it's very important, a man, and I'm thinking now of our next king, which will be William, let's say, barring any unfortunate events. 
when a Prime Minister has to talk to William, they'll be talking to a man who is young to middle-aged, who has served in the army, who everybody knows the life story of. And I think that necessarily leads to a very different dynamic when a Prime Minister is having a conversation about their policies. Now, the problem is also, it's not just the hypothetical example you were thinking of, yeah. so whether or not the monarch would withhold royal assent, the last time it happened was more than 200 years ago. Yes. But the problem is that, and this is something that is specific to the UK constitutional system, in the moment in which political and constitutional actors start to pull the monarch one way or the other, yes. as it happened during the Brexit uh, turmoil, so to speak, uh, in which some, uh, you know, politicians were saying, well, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the, the Queen should withhold royal assent. I mean, I'm not naming names, but I think that... We can find them on UK Constitutional Law Association blog for our I, listeners. <laughs> I think that already in that moment something is broken. And this has to do more generally with the role played by conventions in the UK. Now, constitutional conventions, for those listeners that might not be familiar with the term, are those um, basically non-legal sources of the UK constitution. They are sources of rules that are non-legal, they arise as a matter of practice, of history, but are regarded as binding by the political and constitutional actors involved. Now, what we've witnessed certainly in the last 10 years, uh, particularly, but let's say in the last five for sure, is a breakdown of constitutional convention. We've seen more and more certain political actors, yes. and particularly the last prime minister was a prime example of this, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Well, this is just a, let's say, observation rather Obser- than a... <laughs> observation, but as a matter of fact, many Absolutely. Uh, constitutional conventions were Indeed. not respected Indeed. by Boris Johnson. Now, this is problematic in the same way as pulling the starting to pull the monarch yeah. inside the, the political game because it the constitution the UK unwritten and codified constitution is premised on those conventions being respected, being felt as binding and being effective. If those start to go down then you know we don't know what's gonna happen. And actually we started experiencing what 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 could happen, which is the whole system might start deteriorating in a way that many people says, you know, are we facing a democratic decay, to use a term that has, you know, become a currency in, in uh, international constitutional law discourse? And, and so we go back to the point that, you know, there is a certain symbolic effect that the monarch has, but that is also premised on the fact of being perceived as being outside the political game, not just being actually outside, but being perceived. The perception is almost as important as the actual fact. Absolutely. This reminds me of the principle of bias in one's case that you mentioned earlier. It's not just the bias, it's the perception of bias, which is so important. And I would agree with you in terms of the constitutional functioning of the United Kingdom, that perception of being beyond politics is also crucial. And I would maybe observe here that this could be maybe an unintended negative spillover effect of the increased publicity, transparency that Charles wishes to pursue. The example being the live broadcasting of the accession procedure at the Privy Council. And I'll just give you one example on this. 
people noticed already and it's become a meme that Charles became annoyed about his pen. Now, this in itself shows that people will scrutinise these moments and they will look for any potential, let's say, clue as to what the monarch is thinking politically. And actually, this has led to an extremely interesting story that was reported today uh, by Radio 4 on the Today programme about the fact that I believe there have been requests from the palace to the public broadcasters that certain timestamp moments of the live broadcast of the state funeral should not be broadcast again. So the palace has asked the broadcasters not to broadcast this again. So I think what I'm getting at is the idea that there might be a, a balancing act in play here. If one increases transparency, the openness of the monarchy, there could be the unintended negative consequence that people start to, let's say, interpret certain behaviours in such a way that they indicate the monarch's personal beliefs or uh, opinions, and this in turn can lead to the idea or at least perception that the monarch is engaged in politics. So that's quite a convoluted uh, <laughs> claim, but something I think is quite relevant to what you're talking about. It's a good, it's a good observation. Um, one could also claim that uh, more transparency is necessary for the survival of, of the monarch in this respect. And, and to be fair, I would not, uh, you know, th there, there is a number of, uh, we are going to see, there is going to be some, some developments for sure. If not in the UK, in some Commonwealth countries, uh, we might as well see. It's already started happening. It's already started. Yeah. So I think it's, it's not unlikely that, you know, the monarchy will, will uh, you know, uh, go through a period of, of change. Yes. Uh, what, I'm, what I, what I want to go back to is course, that um, there is an empirical question of whether having a constitution of the monarchy, so whether having a monarch, uh, you know, unelected monarch as head of state can perform better than, uh, you know, an elected president, being the French model, being the Italian model, that's not the point right Absolutely. now. Now, that is an empirical question, and of course it, it, it needs an empirical yes. answer. Now, empirical, there is always going to be an interpretation as well, so it's not going to be just data, raw yeah. data. Yeah. Yeah. Those data will need to be interpreted. But... At the same time, there is a point about also the uh, concept of, you know, democracy, uh, being born equal, the sure. rule of law. So, in my view, um, I, I do see that there will be questions, particularly when it comes to some of the uh, exemptions yeah. or some, some of the differential treatment that the monarchy still gets in the UK whether that can continue at the very least. I'm not even talking about, you know, Republican at the moment, but I'm saying that I see that as, as potentially happening in the not-so-distant future. And I think that's a fascinating point to maybe make an observation before we move on to our, our final questions about, one could say, almost a compromise or middle point between the two models you've provided. So maybe on one hand you've mentioned constitutional monarchy, so hereditary divine right, perhaps not divine, these days at least a hereditary right to be the head of state. On the other side you've mentioned elected presidents. Now you could say the issues of monarchy, are, we've discussed them well, you know, equality almost, uh, where's the merit, where's the meritocracy. But of course one can say the issues of an elected president are the clash between 
one could say the head of state and the head of government. And I'll just give a quick example of this that I found fascinating from uh, colleagues from Scandinavia, where I might need to fact-check this, but I believe that there was a problem in Finland where there was a dispute between the Prime Minister and the President about who should represent Finland in the European Council. And I found that fascinating. So, of course, the European Council is heads of state or government, and there was quite literally a dispute over which person should go. So maybe that indicates some of the problems of elected president. Now, the reason I say all this is perhaps there's an interesting midpoint, which is one one could call appointed president or almost a vocational president. And the example I give here, without going into the actual constitutional niceties of the Irish system, are President Michael D. Higgins. The fascinating thing for me is Michael D. Higgins is a poet, I believe, an author, a literary figure. And he seems to, in a sense, represent Irish culture. Irish society in a way that in my opinion does transcend politics and he's very well known for the fact that he will always be very kind to his dog during interviews so I wonder if that perhaps it's hard to frame perhaps points towards uh, a way through these issues where we have a system where the head of state represents the society and the culture rather than the state and the political system um, I think it's it's a good point. I mean, there is certainly also personal preferences here. Um, you know, for some people it is fine to be the subject of a monarchy, for some people it is not fine, and, you know, uh, some people are Republican. Now, what we can certainly agree on is that no matter what, the head of a state, of a constitutional democratic state, should transcend policy, politics, Absolutely. as you said, yeah, Everyday politics. Everyday politics. And I think that that would be also a key factor in the legitimation of the figure. I agree. Um, then, then it could, you know, then one could say that whether that head of state is... I, I still personally prefer the appointment of a of a head of state uh, rather than, you know, hereditary succession, but this is my personal uh, preference. Of course. Um, what, I, what I certainly do uh, think is that the aspect of equality mm. goes back into the picture. So Absolutely. it goes back, uh, sorry, it, it comes back and is important. So I could, I could accept personally a uh, hereditary head of state yeah. who does not have exemptions from the law as anyone else. And I think a very strong argument for that. I can maybe just give you one example I think is very fascinating in terms of, obviously it's not the kind of equality you're talking about, but in terms of gender equality actually, there were changes in the monarchy which did outline that the next in line to the throne does not have to be the male heir. Of course. It can be a female heir as well. And I find that fascinating as an example of the incremental development toward, almost incremental progressivism at least, which is born out of experience of having a female monarch for so many decades, which might be able to persuade some of the more dissenting conservative voices and I promise we will move on to our final questions but I did actually have one question about the system in Italy which actually comes out of what you said there about the president being out of the fray of everyday politics and I think my, my question and I really do ask this as a, a real kind of you know, curiosity a, a query is do you think that the way in which the president of the republic I believe it was Sergio Mattarella yeah. at the time, the way in which he was perceived to be involved in the selection of ministers around the time of, I believe, the 2017 election, maybe you can correct me on this, 
and was it the Minister of Finance that he vetoed? One of those, but particularly he vetoed uh, uh, one of the candidates uh, that was, I think, expressed by the Five Star Movement at the time. Do you think that compromises the perception of the president being above the fray of ordinary politics? So there is, it's it's a good point, of course. I'm, I'm, I wasn't claiming that the president of the Italian Republic is above. No, of course not. Of course not. What I'm, what I'm saying is that the perception is as important as the actual fact. Absolutely. And one could claim that the president of the republic has first and foremost a duty to the country. Absolutely, yeah. And as a duty to the country in a way that, you know, sometimes might require to actually get one hands dirty. Now, of course, the point is that whether or not this is within what the Constitution allows, and in my view it was, yeah. um, the, the Constitution does uh, foresee a role for the President of the Republic to perform. Absolutely. Um, now, certainly because of the Inner, or almost inherent by now instability of Italian politics, the President of the Republic had to play sometimes, I think even a larger role of what he would have liked. Sergio Mattarella is a, is a, is a man, I think, that ev almost every Italian can vouch for his integrity respect. and sense respect. respect and sense of duty towards exactly. the state yeah, with a you know with a important public servant, public servant of, of the highest kind uh, of the best kind so i'm i'm positive i don't like to speculate on other people's feelings and so forth but I, i'll i'll do it on this occasion and i'll say that I'm pretty confident that the President of the Republic would have very much liked not to have to be so involved in recent times, but Italian politics, as we know, is, is, is interesting. Now, whether someone is, uh, I was reading the other day, I mean, it looks like British politics is becoming, in some respect, much more similar to Italian politics uh, in the last few years, at least. So I'm not sure what we're going to see uh, here in the UK. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I suppose, yeah, I suppose just a key difference, really, in terms of, one could say, the legal process is, of mm. course, a cabinet is appointed purely by the prime minister. The, head, the leader of the party, as you know, commands the confidence of the majority of the house. And so, in a sense, all of this is presented as a fait accompli to the head of state, the monarch. But um, no, the discussion of Sergio Mattarella I find fascinating. And there were two points, one maybe more positive, one more negative. You remind me of a wonderful description, and I believe it's a piece by Federico Fabrini and Aresto Polancini, or Polancino, about the quite literal geographical setup of the buildings in Rome, which I'm sure being from Rome, you know very well about, and the, the facing, the fact that the president of the republic is facing and I believe it's actually, is it the Corte Constitucional, the Constitution yeah, yeah. Court, the idea of these being dual watchdogs? I found that very, actually, quite an enchanting description. And when I visited myself, I felt that. Piazza del Quirinale. There we go. And I think that's really very interesting in terms of, I'm going to say, the actual geographical manifestation of power. The power, yeah. In an order, yeah. which, of course, Rome is uh, very well renowned for. <laughs> but uh, and maybe the darker point is that I hate to bring up the S word, but I think necessarily... Schmittian questions arise almost when we are discussing what the limits of an executive function are and one can even filter this through an American perspective you know, Antonin Scalia's unified executive theory which again to talk about culture brilliantly portrayed in the film Vice directed by Adam McKay with Christian Bale playing uh, Dick Cheney 
but those are just some stray observations. Wasn't Dick Cheney himself? You sure it was Christian Bale? Okay, I, I still indeed. have a doubt. I still have a doubt. But <laughs> I think it may have been Dick Cheney playing I himself. Th- it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, Christian Bale is amazing, but that would be almost like transfigurative. He's, he's, he's so. a great chameleon, uh, Christian Bale. But um, maybe we can move on then to our, our the final questions I had for you, which. I think can be summed up under the umbrella term of constitutional moments. <laughs> and our listeners may be aware that this was used by, I believe, Bruce Ackerman in his, one could say, seminal collection of We the People about the American Constitution. So my question for you firstly is about the UK and then about the European Union. So with regard to the United Kingdom, I think everybody perhaps in the world is aware there is a new monarch. Charles III. We also have a new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. Does this mean that what's happening in the UK in terms of transition can be regarded as a constitutional moment using Ackerman's concept? And just maybe as a brief aside in terms of society, I think it's important to note in the UK that we use the name of the monarch to denote eras in terms of architecture, in terms of culture. We had the Victorian era, the Edwardian, Elizabethan. We now have some discussion whether it be the Carthusian era. But my question for you is, can this be seen as a constitutional moment? And the crucial question, which is about your work, is if we are in a constitutional moment, does this provide the opportunity for remaking constitutional democracy in the UK? And specifically in terms of your argument of the distinction between creation and application of law. Okay, so um, personally, I don't think that this is a constitutional moment, uh, or at least not yet. (laughs) A constitutional moment in the UK would be, I think, if the role uh, of the monarchy starts to be questioned uh, more um, substantively or, or, or more regularly or, or in this respect it, it starts to become if we start seeing the exercise of constituent power that would be the point yeah. basically yeah. so yeah. I think that would be that I would characterize certainly as more of a constitutional moment now we never we must not forget about the geographical territorial makeup of the union absolutely uh, I do think that how the devolved nations will react not just to the accession of the new monarch, but yes. also to the new government. Now, today was a, quite, a, quite a momentous Absolutely. day. The new government has uh, announced what can be defined the most um, extensive uh, tax cut Absolutely. of the last 35 years. Um, there has been already a lot of criticism out because certainly we can say that it's of a regressive type uh, in, in some respects. Sure, sure. Um, uh, just in the way in which the tax cuts uh, are have been announced. Um, now, I do believe that this is going to be particularly relevant in how Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland in particular, considering also the turmoil about the, the protocol will react. Yeah, and maybe I'll come in very briefly to say my work at the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law has been considering the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill and just a very brief look to the future. In 2024, we will see the Northern Ireland Assembly and Stormont being asked to give democratic consent to the continuing function of the Protocol Bill. So I think that's just an illustration of your point about it being a moment of, uh, let's say, 
transition tension. So this is something that I think uh, some politicians in London don't really consider or not all the time, but I really think that uh, looking at the union as a whole and at what the devolved nations do, it's gonna be very uh, distinctive in this respect. Now, uh, when it comes to um, uh, the European Union, uh, that is a bit of a larger question. Absolutely, absolutely. And maybe I can just provide some background context to the question. Um, what we see in the European Union now is I think one can say, I think I've heard the term polycrisis used, <laughs> a crisis of crises. Just to outline, of course, I mean, it's like we don't even talk about the Eurozone crisis anymore, but we could say, let's just start with 2016, Brexit. So what's been called a secession crisis or a crisis of membership. The rule of law crisis, yep. what I like to call instead the values crisis. Self-identified and liberal member states challenging the foundational values. We also now have what can be called quite literally a military crisis on the borders of the European Union, which has become directly relevant for EU constitutionalism because Ukraine, which is still engaged in a land war with Russia, is a candidate member state. And the evocative term integration through war, or maybe in spite of war, has been used. We also have what one could see as maybe not a crisis, but the attempt to address it with the Conference on the Future of Europe. And this could be seen as addressing a more long-standing, almost intellectual crisis, which is known as the democratic deficit. And that has led to formal calls, I believe, from the European Parliament to amend foundational treaties. So I think this is the background context for the question of whether, and this is maybe interesting to contrast to the UK, is this a constitutional moment for Europe? And if so, could we see a remaking of constitutional democracy within the EU? So in the book, I do not talk about the European Union for a number of reasons. The first and foremost is that I consider the European Union legal system to be sui generis, effectively. It does not fit uh, squarely within uh, even my. Uh, well, it, it could fit with the with the framework of separation of powers theory that I put forward in the last chapter of the book. Absolutely. But anyway, um, to consider, yeah. well, in the sense that I believe that in the, in the last chapter of the book I argue that we need to abandon the tripartite version, the Montesquieuian version of the separation, and we should instead consider. And this is, by the way, this is Luigi Ferraioli's uh, theory. Ferraioli is a very well-known Italian legal and constitutional thinker who's uh, very famous in uh, all Latin-speaking uh, countries, uh, South America, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, Italy, France, etc. But he has not been translated yet in English. I'm, I'm trying to work on that <laughs> soon. Now, um, what I want to say about the European Union is that this could certainly be a constitutional moment for the European Union. Yes. It needs, in order for it to be so, yes. it needs to address what is still, I think, at the core, one of the biggest issues of European integration, which is the incomplete um, uh, economic uh, integration yes. of the EU. So until, I, I really do believe that until the European Union uh, doesn't have a unified tax uh, policy, both, especially when it comes to corporations, you know, like, uh, in regards to uh, persons, it can be a framework, but when it comes to uh, corporations, so 
what I'm saying is that the European Union and the single market in particular has done a lot for European integration, but some crucial elements of it are not yet there. And in my view, this has hindered in many respects what are the necessarily the next stages. Now, I do believe and I do like the idea of a federation of states in the European Union. I do think that the federal model personally, I know that many people disagree, but I do think that the federal model is on the long run the possibly the only one yeah. through which the European Union cannot just survive but actually become what I think it can become. I'm a convinced European, yeah. a Europeanist in this respect or supporter of the European yes. Union anyway, recognizing all the issues and the mistakes that the European Union has made in terms of economic policies, in terms of the austerity program that has caused in my home country as well as well as so an Irish human. To err is human, not to learn from mistakes is a bit more problematic. Absolutely. And we are seeing some issues now even with the rule of law conditionality mechanism and the application. We are, seeing, we are seeing some tinkering uh, by the European Commission that is problematic because it plays in the hands of autocrats uh, yes, right now in the European Union space. But there is the potential for the Russian invasion of Ukraine to constitute a push of sorts. I mean, history sometimes does that and from something really awful for something tragic, could potentially something good happen, but it needs to be seized. This is this is a I think it's an historical opportunity, but it needs to be there needs to be the same political will that you know, 70 years ago, uh, made some people realize, or 60 years ago, made some people realize that you know there was there was a there was a potential future that was not that was not even imaginable before because you know it was unimaginable unimaginable for France and Germany yes. not to be at war constantly all the time but actually become so integrated that the idea of war is unthinkable between the two so um, so yes I, I do believe that there is much more potential for the European right now of a constitutional moment the uh, conference on the future of Europe could, uh, you know, prompt transforming this impetus into concrete political action. But it needs to address um, it needs to address uh, what are the unresolved questions of integration, and many of them have to do with uh, economic integration, the mistakes made in terms of austerity, and recognizing that yes. you know the European Union has in some countries has driven people away or has contributed at least to driving people away from the European project. Absolutely and I would maybe just uh, point to some of our previous publications on these topics as Senior Eiling Larsen on the idea of a federation it reminds me of something Martin Lachlan said at LSE that if you have what he called economic sovereignty in the hands of institutions, then you have a federation. So maybe that's a debate for another time, but I think what you said is very significant for our present moment, and this term of integration through war, integration despite war, integration after war, perhaps we have for the first time 
a moment for Europeans to understand what it felt like in 1945. To understand why it was so important. You can see what it means to Ukrainians. Absolutely. And you can see that Ukrainians are actively pursuing this, that it would mean how much it means to them, hopefully, can also represent some sort of booster, shall we say, shall we use the terminology that we have all unfortunately come to, well, unfortunately, <laughs> thank God for, for vaccines, but you indeed, know, indeed. Uh, it, it could represent a, a much needed booster to the idea of, of Europe and the, the European Union that in the last 15-20 years has been, um, you know, has been, has been, I'm looking for a specific word that I cannot find right now. Has been, I don't want to say diluted, but has, has, has been... Has um, challenged. Has been challenged, yes, thank you. I think that's a really positive point to end on. I would just, um, I would just finish by encouraging our listeners and readers to check out Paolo's book if they can. It's uh, published with Heart Publishing. And I'm sure it's available at all good online and uh, in-person booksellers. And I'd also encourage our listeners and readers to uh, follow RevDem on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook for continuing conversation of this nature. But Paolo, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation. And we look forward to staying in touch with you in the future as you develop these ideas. Thank you for having me, Oliver. Thank you so much. And thank you to the listeners. Thank you.